All right. Hey, let me start off uh, this morning. I wanted, I definitely, as always, want to say hello to other Western North Carolina campuses, our online audience. Uh, say hello to the folks in Franklin. Say hello to the folks in Hendersonville, in, uh, in West Asheville. Uh, but seven years ago, when we started multi-site and trying to go where the people were instead of asking the people to come to us, uh, we were not sure it uh, was going to work. And seven years ago, a uh, group of people uh, said, we'll be the guinea pigs, and we started a multi-site campus out in Swananoa at a school, and for the past seven years, they've been getting there early, uh, setting up early, then staying late, tearing things down late, and facilities aren't the ministry, but facilities facilitate the ministry, and after seven years, uh, I tell you what, all the campuses, uh, put your hands together for the brand new East Asheville campus, all right? Very excited about that. Very, very excited. I tell you what, let me thank you, church. Regardless of what campus you go to, thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your generosity. All right, thanks for your ministry. Thanks for never being satisfied with just uh, the status quo or the ground that has already been taken. You're always, you're always like, let's go. Let's get more. Let's do more for the Lord. So thank you for having that kind of mindset. You lean in. Uh, anyway, awesome season in the life of our church. All right, take your Bibles, whatever campus that you're on, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We have been in a series called Be the Movement. We've been in there for about six or seven weeks, and we will conclude it today. All right, next week is Palm Sunday. It will almost be like Preparation Sunday, all right? We will have a great time of preparation because then the week after that is the probably what we're praying is and expecting and believing God for is the most impactful weekend that we've ever had in the life of our church church. Not only is it Easter weekend, but for the first time we'll have actually some good Friday services, and those good Friday services are designed to slingshot us into Easter, all right? You can't celebrate the empty tomb quite as much as if you haven't already gone to the cross. And so on that Good Friday, we're going to go with the cross. We're not even going to get to the tomb that Good Friday. We're going to go there. We're going to sit there for a while. And what our prayer is, is that throughout the rest of the Easter weekend, that will slingshot you spiritually and emotionally into the celebration that is a risen Savior. So that's where, that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Now, here's where we've been. And here's kind of what we've been doing in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the early church, but we don't look at history like a historian. We don't look at it for nostalgia. We're not looking back at the early church as remarkable as it was. You have the largest movement in human history that started with virtually no money, no positions of influence, none of that, 12 very ordinary people. But an extraordinary God, an extraordinary mission, and then an extraordinary movement took place that you and I are now at least a part of. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, I'm part of the movement, I'm part of the movement. And so what we've been doing as a church is driving some stakes in the ground. Those stakes in the ground are, we've always talked about our purpose as a church is to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God that reach up, reach in, reach out. But how does that take place? What are, the, what are the things that we hold dear on how do we actually get to that? And over the last six or seven weeks, that what we've been, that's what we've been reinforcing. That's what we've been saying. This is who we are. This is what we're about. All right? It's a, it's a lot of it is we. It's we collectively, but there's also some me. All right? We is like, this is a challenge to us as a church. Me is that if I'm a part of a church, if I'm part of a movement, then what is my role? And we've visited six or seven values. We started off by saying that we acknowledge from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we embrace the mission. All right? God has called each and every one of us to be on mission with him. Second week, we looked at the fact that we believe God's word. We believe God's word, that we are 
Fewer and fewer and fewer, but we are unapologetically saying that we believe God's promises. We believe what God has said in the Bible. Third week, we talked about we pursue authentic relationships. This is not a place for perfect people, all right? We are broken sinners redeemed by Jesus, and that is what brings us together. And so then we talked about we unify around the gospel. Everybody is different. We got people in Franklin that are different than people in Hendersonville that are different than Arden. You've got people on your row that are different than you. But if you're a Christ follower, what unifies us is the gospel. All the other stuff, all the preferences, all the particulars, those things are subsidiary. They are submissive to the greater good and the greater gospel message. We uh, uh, spent a few other weeks. We've gone through some different things as, uh, as well. And I, what, we, what we're saying is this. What we're saying is this, is that, church, we've experienced, we have ex- we've experienced a lot. We have experienced a lot. But I will since then. I thought about this all week as kind of the capstone. God's been very gracious to us as a church. Uh, but I believe with all of my heart, God has something more for us. All right. God has something more for our church. He has something more for our community. He has something more for our schools. He has something more uh, for our families, for your marriage. But a lot is dependent on what the text presses home today. What it presses home is, in some ways, reinforces the fact that the seeds of what we are experiencing today as a church were planted 30 years ago on a gymnasium floor by a bunch of broken 60, broken people that were crying out to God and saying, God, would you do more? God, would you do more? All right, we've messed it up. We have sin. We have all these things. We confess that, but God, would you do more? Would you take our church and influence Western North Carolina? And those are 60 broken people in a broken church saying, God, there's got to be more. And they cried out to God, and God has done more. And what we want to do is uh, be kind of, let me be blunt at the start this morning. And all these ones we've looked at today, I would say, are pretty, you know, we've, we've got some, we've excelled in some of these areas as far as like, nobody would say they don't believe God's word. We've got thousands of volunteers every single weekend, so very few people would say, you know what, they really look at themselves as an audience and not an army. But what we have to remember, and the thing that most easily slips off the table is, the fact of it is, if we individually examine ourselves, most of us at church today, most of us at church today do not have a healthy, robust prayer life. We 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 just don't. I've seen enough surveys, I've talked to enough people, I've experienced enough dry times myself. Most of us do not have a healthy, robust prayer life. Now, I'm not saying we don't know about prayer, I'm saying we do. We read about it, we talk about it, we sing about it, we put on conferences about it, but actually talking to God expectantly, biblically, desperately, passionately, and confidently, hardly at all, hardly at all. Theologian D.A. Carson says, if you want to embarrass most Christians, just ask them about their personal, private prayer life. Just ask them about that. And they're like, well, there's one survey that did that only 6% of seminarians, now that's like supposed to be like God's elite, those called to the ministry, only 6% of them had daily prayer times with Almighty God. And so uh, I would say, like, why would that be the case? And to be blunt, here's kind of the bluntness of it, and then we'll jump into the text. Is I think the only thing that I can think of is that down deep in our heart, we don't, we're just not sure how much prayer actually works. You're like, that's blasphemy. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying if we knew, I mean, if you knew that if I prayed that it would work, then you and I would pray more. 
We pray more confidently. We pray more vigorously. We would pray more, but I think the bottom line is we just don't want to admit this in church because you go, sometime I pray and things happen, and sometimes I forget to pray and, uh, and they happen. Sometimes I don't pray and they happen anyway. You're like, well, they happened when I didn't pray and they didn't happen when I did pray, so why should I do that? I want to say also, this is a story we hear all the time. I've heard this 300 times since I've been in North Carolina. And it goes something like this. The fact is when you prayed and something didn't happen like you thought it was going to happen, it not only made you stop praying, it made you just abandon God and the church altogether. Because you asked God for something and God didn't act like you thought God should have act, acted. And you're like, you know what, if that's the way you're going to act, I'm just out of here altogether. Some of you are at East Campus today back for the first time. Some of you are here and you're like, you know what, I'm going to give it one more shot. And so hopefully today is going to be... Uh, an encouragement, uh, encouragement to you. But I think the truth of the matter is, if we're just blunt about it, we treat prayer. I mean, think about how we talk about prayer. Well, I guess all we can do now is just what? Is pray. You know, we tried all the other stuff. I guess all we can do just now is we can just pray. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the last kid picked for the dodgeball game at school. It's like, you know what it is? It's like, well, I guess, you know, we picked all the good players. I guess we'll pick Johnny. All right, Johnny, you come over to our side. You're never going to help us out. That's the way we treat prayer. But that is not the last kid picked in the dodgeball game. The, what you see in the book of Acts is this is the nuclear option, right? This is the thing that says, you know what, this is what we have to do. I apologize if I've ever said this statement and left it alone and not been clear. I've heard good preachers say it, and there's some truth to it, but it's not a complete, it's not a complete truth. And what I've heard people say is, you know what, prayer doesn't really change things. Prayer changes me. Now, I would say there's, that's a half-truth. Prayer does change the prayer. I mean, you can't pray for someone or for something until God prepares your heart and gets you ready to get the answer that he's already more than willing to give. So there is some truth to prayer prepares the prayer. But to say that that's the sole purpose of prayer is not true. Because what you see is prayer does change things. And the early church believed that. And so what we're going to see is we're going to look at a text today that's not just about you and I should pray, because be honest, most people feel guilty when you hear a sermon on prayer. You hear about all these people, I prayed four hours and I prayed. Most people, you know, you'll feel guilty, you go pray for like a week, and then you'll just like go back. But if you know how to, if you know some of the principles, if you know the why behind it, then you and I are more likely to jump in and actually get our feet wet. And here's what I would just say again, what if God had more for, for you? What if God had more for you? What if God had more for your school, your family, your community, but we never got it simply because we didn't really know how to ask? And so here's the early church, and then we're going to jump into our text about how Acts chapter 1, they pray for 10 straight days. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches. 3,000 people get saved. Acts chapter 2, it says they were devoted to prayer. Acts chapter 4, where we're going to look at today, or the back half, they pray, God fills them with boldness, they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down, 10,000 people, the church comes at 10,000 people. Acts chapter 6, they say, you know what, we got to reorganize this whole thing so we as the leaders can pray and do ministry in the word. Acts chapter 12, they pray, God blows up a prison and strikes down Herod with worms, all right, that's a Awesome prayer. All right, and in, in, in the next chapter, 13, they pray, God raises up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary the world's ever known. Acts chapter 14, they appointed elders after they prayed. But you're like, how do I do that? How do I do that? I don't know how to pray. Well, what we're going to do is I want to try to lift from uh, the text five 
four, five, or six, depending on time, how principles that we can actually put into effect, and then we're going to save some time at the end of our services, all of our services. We're going to spend some time at the end. What do you think we ought to do at the end of a sermon on prayer? That, that is exactly what we will do, all right? Well done. Go ahead and go to Acts chapter 4. Let me start. Let me do 23 and 24, and then I'll give us our first principle. This was, this was uh, so convicting and refreshing for me personally, all right? Thank you for being a church that says, we want you to get in the book every day, every week, so you have something to feed. It is so joyful to be a part of a church. It's like, feed us, feed us, feed us. Like, you can even offend us, but just feed us the word. Thanks, because, man, I get blessed more than all of y'all getting into the word, and this week has been no different. So here's where we are, Acts 4, 23 and 24. We're going to look at the first principle, all right? When they were released, when they were released, a little quick background is they've been preaching. They've been preaching the message. They've been preaching it hard. They're like, you crucified Jesus. All these people get saved. The authorities come, throw them in jail, and that's... That's what's going on now. So they, they're, they're just now getting released. So they go to their friends. That's a good place to go when you've had a hard time. And they reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them, all right? Basically what they said is, we're warning you, do not, do not teach about Jesus anymore. The church, that's a quick little nugget for us, all right? Just understand our culture does not get mad when you and I serve the city of Asheville or the western North Carolina. They do not get mad at that, all right? They're not going to get offended when we try to solve the foster care crisis in western North Carolina. They're like, that's good. They're not going to be offended when we go downtown and serve the homeless. They're not going to be offended and push back when we spread out on survey 28. That's not what's going to be offensive to them. But the Bible tells us repeatedly that the gospel itself is a stumbling block to people. And so they say, do not talk about Jesus anymore. And here's, let's check this out. And when they heard it, when they heard it, so they go back, they tell the church, hey, here's what they said to do. And just, just think about it. What would have been our first reaction? Right. If they're like, if you teach about him anymore, we are going to kill you, Okay. Okay, what would have been their, our first, my first reaction? My first reaction is like, man, we've got to get a better security plan, all right? We've got to get a better security plan than this, all right? Um, or maybe it would have been, because uh, it's, it's Peter and John both, all right? Maybe if it was both of them, like, okay, we've got to get a designated survivor, all right? Because we can, they can never be in the same place at the same time anymore, all right? We've got to rethink this strategy. Or you, I don't think we'd think this, but it would be very easy to go, well, let's stop, let's stop with this whole you killed Jesus and you better repent because Jesus is the only way to heaven. Stop that and let's go to something easier. Maybe like Song of Solomon, that's sexy, we can preach that for a while, allow them to cool down. But it's, here's what they did. It says, when they heard it, I love this, they lifted their voices together to God. What was their first thing? Their first thing was, man, we are threatened, let's, let's lift our voices to God. So principle number one, and this is where we're going to do at the end. I want you to think about it. What is the most desperate thing in your life? Because here's what happened, is they are praying, and they're praying and they're praying what I'm just going to call desperately, desperately. Uh, just a question, you know, why did the early church constantly pray? It's very, very easy, very, very easy in our day and time to look back on the early church and think they were just nothing but spiritual giants. And certainly there were many of them. Certainly there were many of them. But you look back and why did the early church, why were they so constantly crying out to God for help? Why are they in Acts chapter 4 saying, God, you've got to help, or it's a, the whole thing's going to tumble over? Why is that happening? Is it because they're spiritual giants? No, they're praying because they're scared. 
They are desperate. The Romans had crucified Jesus. They crucified Jesus. They just threatened the leaders. And I would, I would, let me submit this to you. I'm going to go through these five quick. I don't want to get to the end and go, oh, we didn't have enough time to pray. So you, I'm going to talk fast. You think fast and you take notes fast, but you look at it. And the, one of the things that keeps us from praying is our failure to recognize how utterly desperate we are for God's help. Most of us think prayer is a discipline problem. It's not a discipline problem. It's not like, I'm not disciplined enough to pray. I don't go to the gym either, and I don't eat well. I'm just not disciplined, so I'm just not a prayer. It's not a discipline issue, okay? It's not a discipline issue. It's a dependence issue. It's a dependence issue. It's the idea that somewhere in the back of my mind, I think somewhere in here with my talent, my money, my influence, my skills, my whatever, I can make this thing work. And we totally ignore Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. You can do nothing of any eternal significance at all. And it runs in our culture. I mean, we are, let me just look at who we are. We are Americans. We are the can-do people, all right? We are Americans, all right? We're not Americans, all right? We are Americans. I can, I can do this. We are do-it-yourself people, and that is good. It honestly is good. The Bible talks a lot about, listen, you carry your own load, all right? There's your normal responsibility you and I are supposed to carry. But what it is is it's deadly when it comes to whether or not you are depending on God. We just... If you don't believe that, just think about uh, when you pray and when you don't pray. When we think about the idea, I'm too busy, I don't know how, all this stuff. It's amazing, though, sometimes what happens is God pulls back the cover, the illusion of control, and when God pulls back the illusion of control, then what do we do? We cry out to God. You're like, I don't know how, I don't pray. It's been months since I actually prayed except for over a meal or a windshield prayer, like as you're driving to work, God, help me with this interview. I'm talking about designated, intentional prayer time. But you know when that does come? Intentional prayer time comes when your kid gets sick. I don't mean sick with a flu. I don't mean sick with, oh, he's got to get his tonsils out. I'm saying when your kid gets sick, sick, I'm talking about real sick. I'm talking about deathly sick. I'm talking about the doctor saying, I'm not sure if he's going to make it. I'm not sure if she's going to pull through. You let that happen, and all of a sudden, you and I, we pray. We pray. We ask other people to pray. We get desperate. We cry out to God. You lose your job. You get close to losing your house. It's like, God, please help us with this. Your spouse comes in and says they found their soulmate on Facebook that they met years ago in high school and they hadn't seen each other in 20 years, but after praying about it and thinking about it, I found my soulmate, so I'm out of here. Then you and I pray. When your doctor says it's cancer, when your son gets put into a war zone as he is in the military, what I want you to understand is when you look at the early church, they saw prayers like a walkie-talkie during warfare time. They didn't see it as some little intercom or some cute little way to call up to Sally to come down for dinner. They're like, you got to show up here. We are on the front lines. And here's what always troubles me and why we can get so lethargic. And I say we, not you. We can get lethargic. The reason is sometimes we just do not understand that we actually are in a spiritual battle. And we don't have time to unpack Ephesians 6 and some other ones. But one thing came to mind, there's a poster, it's actually in my house, it's a framed picture. If you're at my house sometime and you go down into the basement right there at the end before I go in to get into my car, there's a poster there, a picture there that I've had for probably 25 years and it's actually taken on much new meaning even over the last two years. And what you see in that picture is you've got a dad and a dad is over there and you've got little Johnny, I don't know how old little Johnny is, Johnny's like five and he's sound asleep in his, he's sound asleep in his bed and dad is over there and dad is just praying over little Johnny all he can, just praying and praying and praying. But in the background, outside the window, 
what you see is you see some kind of spiritual warfare going on. You see some kind of angel fighting, some kind of demon, something like that. You're like, well, you're getting kind of freaky now. All I'm talking about is do you not think for one second, seriously, do you not think your enemy wants to split your marriage up? You don't, you, don't think that's, you don't think that's true? Somewhere in your theology, somewhere in your theology, you better make room for an enemy. Somewhere in your theology, you better make some room for spiritual warfare. And the understanding is, listen, do you don't think that he wants little Johnny? You don't think that he wants little Sally's mind? Of course they do. And so what this is, just understanding, uh, it's just desperate days, desperate days. And so here's what I want to ask you at the start, is, is what do you have in your life going on right now that's saying that, God, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, if you don't come through, then it's just going to fall apart. Maybe you're not in that and you need to pray for somebody else. Maybe right now the sky is blue and the sun is shining, but you've got a friend and man, it is all hell is breaking loose. It is stormy and you pray for them. But if you've got one right now, it's like, God, if you don't step in, my marriage is over. If you don't step in, my prodigal's never coming back. If you don't step in, my business will collapse. It's amazing how much more we prayed in 2008, correct? It's amazing, amazing that churches were full at, at 9-11, Churches were praying in 2008. Why? Because all of a sudden the illusion of control got pulled back. And so I want to ask you, church, we've got to pray desperately. All right, that's number one. Let me give you another one. Uh, look at 24. Sovereign Lord, let me, uh, I should have highlighted this. This is like the CPR. If you can do, this is the CPR of the Christian life. Let me just put that out there. The CPR of the Christian life is being able to understand at least a little bit of understand. You're talking to a sovereign God. CPR, CPR, you do in emergencies. You're like, if you don't get down there and blow in his mouth, if you don't get down there and pound on his chest, he's dead. You're trying to resuscitate him. That's what the sovereignty of God is. But he says, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, if we had time, this is a great picture of the inspiration of scriptures. Like David said it, but God gave him the words, all right? Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And what he does here, and we'll get to in a second, some of your Bibles, it's indented. When you see something like that indented, that's kind of a clue that the, the person who put that Bible together is triggering you to say, this is another part of the Bible they're quoting. And in this case, they're quoting part of Psalm number two. Psalm number two, which is a big time, what they call messianic psalm. But it says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed, that's what? That's talking about Jesus way before Jesus came to earth. All right, Anointed is the idea of Messiah, rescuer, deliverer, the chosen one. That's who he's talking about. And that's who then he comes back and quotes. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And here it is. What he's saying is we got a bunch of enemies. We got Herod. We got Pilate. We got the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jew people. And we got the Jews. A lot of people are like, you know what? Uh, sometimes Christians are like accused of being anti-Semitic. It's like you're saying the Jews killed Jesus. And what you see in this text real quickly is the idea we... It says here, it says, you know what, the Romans did, the Jews did, the Gentiles did, but bottom line, what it says is, you know what, all behind that is God. None of this surprised God. Why? Because it says he's a sovereign Lord. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, and check this out, whatever, 
What's that say? What's that say? What's the word there? To do what? Your hand. Your hand. That's God's hand. It's like, God, you were writing history before the events happened. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. Don't freak out over that. This is talking about a history being written here. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about history right here. Your plan had predestined to take place. And uh, here's, here's we're going to put number two up here. Put this word. Uh, when we pray, we need to pray confidently. Confidently. How many? How, I mean, this list is, we pray some dumb prayers. We, we pray some dumb prayers. We pray some prayers that he's already said. Listen, I've already answered that prayer. God, will you just be with me? Will you just be with me as I go into this job interview? He already has told you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's already told you that, all right? Then we pray, you know, it's like, uh, Sometimes we pray dumb prayers. He's like, hey, God, will you just help me with this test? Okay, there's nothing wrong with praying for a test, all right? But he also might say, okay, I'm gonna help you with the test, but I also wanna help you three days before to actually study for the material that you're about to, you're about to take a test on. God bless this food and uh, to the nourishment of our bodies. I'm, I'm sorry, sometimes he's just saying, you know, don't have a Big Mac, all right? Go have, a, go have some lettuce. That would be something that would bless your body as well. But here, when it says confidently, when it says confidently, here's what it is. That God is sovereign. Everybody's like, what does that mean? What does sovereign mean? God is sovereign means that he is above it all. It means that he rules, rules over all nations, kings, kingdoms, philosophies, ideologies. There is no match in majesty, in his power, in his glory. There's none of that. And the reason that they start this way is because when difficulties hit and when pain visits your house, that's not what it feels like. When pain visits your house and you do not get to audit that class, it feels like because all sovereignty is all about a throne. When the Bible wants to talk about God's sovereignty, it talks about God on the throne, Jesus on the throne. That's a picture of God's sovereignty. But when pain hits and when cancer comes and when the prodigal won't come home and all that stuff happens, what happens is it feels like someone else is on the throne. And what they're saying here is it looks like Herod's on the throne. It looks like Pilate's on the throne. It looks like the Jews are on the throne. It looks like the Gentiles are on the throne. God, you're the one on the throne. But when it hits your house, you feel like, uh, you feel like the guy behind the speedboat who's inner tubing, you know. You're just like, you're holding on, but you're like, somebody's driving that boat. They're driving that boat and they're slinging me everywhere and it just doesn't feel like God's on the throne. And you begin to look at this text and if ever there was a time that looked like God was not on the throne, if ever there was a time that it looked like God was not sovereign, it would have been at the cross of Jesus. I mean, that's when it looked like, you know what? I mean, picture being back then. You'd go try to talk about God's sovereignty to somebody and you go to the cross and Jesus is hanging there and they're like, where's God? Where's God? He's like, he's right there. He's right there. Which one is he? He's right there. You mean the bloodied, nearly naked, beaten one who's dying right there? He, he's the sovereign one? He didn't look like the sovereign one. He looks like the defeated one. He looks like the one that got beat up. He does not look like he's on the throne at all. And what you see is that the murder of Jesus is the most horrific thing that was ever done in the history of the world. It's also the most wonderful thing that has ever been done in the history of the world because people have a plan, but what? God has a bigger plan, all right? People have a plan. God has a much better plan. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, so let me just run through it real quickly. We, we talked about it with Stephen and his martyrdom, and not everybody gets a pony for Christmas, okay? Not everybody has all this stuff. It's not that. 
Here's what you got to remember is the church is saying, God, all this happened according to your plan. We know that everything in its own way is under your control and you have purposed to use all things, both good and bad, for the progress of your plan. And so even though this stinks, even though this feels overwhelming to us, we're going to trust that you are working in it. That's why we asked last week or a few weeks ago, what if your first thought when a problem occurs is, God, you are sovereign, you are going to use this problem for the accomplishing of your purposes? I mean, how would that change everything? We get so upset because we, we picture half a verse and you claim half a verse like Romans eight twenty eight, and you read it off your coffee mug. And it says, God works all things together for good. And that's where you leave it. God works all things together for good. That's not the whole verse. It says, God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then it says, part of that purpose is for you and I to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's part of it. And so, by the way, uh, works together is where we get our word synergy from. He's like, it's not saying everything is good. That's not true. Not everything is good. He's saying God is so sovereign and so big, he can take the bad things, even the wicked things, even your sin, even my sin, and he's so sovereign and so big and so good, he can take all that stuff, put it together, and eventually it's gonna turn out for your good. That's what he's saying. And that's good news. That's good news because it's like, that's confident. I can understand that. So, okay, here's our deal. I don't know, I'm sure Hendersonville was applauding much better, but here's the rule we talked about at worship. In worship, in worship, if four people clap just to love your brother or your sister, the rest of you at least got to join in, all right? So let me, let me just, let me just kind of give you another run at that, all right? So let me give you another run. So when I do that, and this poor sister right here, and she's clapping all alone, she feels bad. So some of you need to support her, all right? So let me give you another shot. She's going to clap, and the rest of you are going to come uh, together, okay? So here's what it is. In every problem, in every setback, I think, sovereign God, you've appointed this to happen. You are using it for your purposes. You turn tragedy into triumph. All my difficulties or under your dominion. God, show me how you're going to use this for your glory and your purpose and make me bold in the meantime. That's, that's, see how much better that is? You feel, you feel uh, much better, much, 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 much better. All right, so here's, let's go to this next one. All right, we got to take some, we, uh, what do we pray? Here's the, here's the one that I want you to think about. Pray biblically. Pray biblically, and they see, what, see what's going on. They're starting to pray, and it says they together lift up their voice, and before they even get halfway through their prayer, what are they doing? They're actually quoting the Bible back to God in their prayer. They're quoting, as I said, they're quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and following. They're quoting that back to God. Now, question, are they quoting that because they think God forgot the psalm? They are not doing that. They're not. What they're understanding is, listen, there is power. If I can pray, I know God wants some stuff to happen. And so I'm not just going to read my Bible. I'm actually going to pray my Bible back to God. So the first thing is like, I'm going to pray God's word back to him. So many times we've talked about, don't just read your Bible. You pray your Bible. When you look at your Bible, you actually look for principles or promises I know some of the promises are specific to the context. I understand that. Don't email me about, I understand some of the promises are specific to their context. For example, when he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, even though you're 99, I would not necessarily go get a place at the nurse, you know, at the, at the, at the, at the retirement home that has a nursery. Okay. I'm not saying you can claim that promise, but here's, here's the mystery in it. The mystery in it is second Corinthians chapter one. And I don't understand how this all works. We actually have a song we don't sing very often because none of us can figure out actually what the verse means that's behind the whole, whole thing. But 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, 
It says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And the only thing I put down is each promise points to something that God has offered us in Christ. That in Christ, all the blessings, all the blessings that come with being a son or daughter of Almighty God through repentance and faith are in Jesus. So here's what I want to leave you with. We're not going to take a huge amount of time on this point. When you're reading your Bible, pray when you see a principle or you see a promise. Somebody said sometime the prayers that are answered from heaven start in heaven. And what they're saying is if I'm praying something God has already said he wants done, you can have some amazing confidence that that thing's going to get done. And so you can give countless examples. I put down, uh, I put down five or six here. So for example, you got somebody that is, you love dearly, but they don't know Jesus and you're very, 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 very burdened for them. All right. So what you might do is you might take Isaiah 59.1 that says, behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save and his ear dull that it cannot hear. You know what you're praying? You're reading Isaiah 59. You're like, God, I want to pray right now for Bill. I want to pray. I've forgotten to pray for him for the last month. But Isaiah 59.1, you said that your ear is not so dull that it cannot hear. So I know that you hear my prayer. That your hand is not too short that it cannot save. So God, right now, I pray that you would break through Bill's life. That you would organize the circumstances, cultivate his heart. So there'll be a day when he hears the gospel, when he responds to Jesus in repentance and faith. You don't think that kind of prayer is going to be answered? You can pray that. Let me give you a few more. Some of you aren't going to clap as much at this one, but here's one that has been a big one for Lori and I for years, all right? Proverbs 3, 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine or some of you with Welch's grape juice. And so here's what he's saying. He's like this. He's like, all right, God, right now I'm reading Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, and you tell me to honor you with all of my wealth. I want to honor. I want to put weight in what you say. And you say, if I honor you with the first of all my produce, then you will take care to make sure that I have enough on the other side. So God, right now, with this tithe check, this offering, this whatever, this generosity, this compassion child that I'm sponsoring right now, we don't really have the money. We can't see it on our balance sheet, but I'm doing this knowing that you will take care of this. If I take care of what's on your heart, you will take care of what's on my heart, all right? So that's what some of us need to pray. Just pray like that. We can just kind of go on and on and on like this. Uh, sometime it's not a pr- not, sometimes it's not a promise. Sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes you read something and you know that that's not going on and you don't know how to fix it and yet God challenges you. I mean, husbands, I could talk to all of us. Those of you that are privileged to be husbands, you come across something like Ephesians 5.25 and it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you're going, man, my wife didn't treat me like she used to treat me. She's not looking like she used to look and things are kind of more blah than they are, boom. I mean, you know, I just wish it could be better than it is right now. All right, instead of praying for God to change your wife, what you might pray, just might pray right then. is like, God, right now, I want to pray that you would help me, help me and humble me to actually serve and love and sacrifice for my wife like you sacrificed for me. You died on the cross for me and you're just asking me to serve her and to love her and to put her needs first. And so God, right now, in my flesh. I don't want to do that. I want this. I want to be the center of the universe, but God, you're the center of the universe and you ask me to make you the center and you make my wife super important and more than me. So right now for the rest of this day, by the power of the spirit of God and by the grace of God, I'm going to love and I'm going to serve and I'm going to humble myself as I try to lead my family in Jesus name. Amen. All right. What's going to happen is what's going to happen. All of a sudden you're going to give your wife somebody brand new to actually respond to. He's like, God changed my wife. Maybe he did, but maybe he didn't. But I know he changed you. All right, just uh, 
So you guys are in a good clapping mood. Let me give you a couple more. Right, you're praying for guidance. You're praying for James chapter 1. You're like, I don't know. Do I take this job in Cincinnati or do I stay here or whatever? James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And so what do you do? God, I'm telling you what, I want wisdom. Wisdom is biblical common sense. God, I want biblical common sense. What's best for my family? What's best for my kids? Not just what's best for the paycheck. What's best, what's best, for, what's best for the kingdom? Tell me what to do. You tell me that you will supply it if I ask without a double mind. And so I'm asking right now, my yes is on the table. Give me some guidance. God will give you guidance. All right, two more. These are some encouraging ones. Uh, Really? All right. So, so, all right, we gotta gotta move. Let me, uh, let me give you one more. All right, there's there's someone, there's, there's ones like if you're tempted, Tempted, you could do 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation's overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a means of escape. What does that mean? God, right now, I, I tell you what, this thing, this temptation is kicking my tail. It's kicking me every single time. But you say it's not too much for you. It's not too much for me if you are empowering me. And you actually give me an escape hatch. So right now, when this temptation comes, give me, show me the escape hatch to run through, Okay. Or take Psalm 127. Psalm 127 says that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. It's like, so if you have kids or grandkids, what are you praying? You're like, God, you say, you say, that, you say, my, you say little Philip, he's like an arrow. He's like an arrow, all right? And he's going to go somewhere. So God, for the years ahead that you give me, help me to be a good example, a good model. Help me to show what loving Jesus is all about. And so you can throw that arrow exactly what is best for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus, all right? That's the kind of prayer you can pray and say, all right, I'm going to pray a biblical, I'm going to pray a biblical prayer. Some of you are like, I, 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 gotta, I don't know, I prayed that for a year and it just didn't happen. And so let me give you this one real quickly that you kind of see here, but you see it more in some other places. And pray persistently. What have you given up praying for? What did you used to pray for passionately? You, you cried out to God, but God didn't answer. And one month turned into two months. Two months turned into a year. A year turned into two years. And it's been a long time since you were persistently there. I would say in this text, you see the church, you can't tell how many times they prayed it. It's in a tense. You can't tell. Do they keep praying this or not? What I do know is this. What I do know is that Luke and Acts, if you remember, are one volume, all right? It's like one book with two different parts. And in the book of Luke, what you see is Jesus is actually explaining the doctrine that Acts is working it out. And the book of Luke goes out of its way to, t- for, to show parables where Jesus said, don't give up, Okay. Don't stop praying. Remember remember the parables? We've taught on all these. One parable is about the widow who will not let a judge go. Got some wicked judge, and she's like, I'm knocking at the door. I'm not giving up, all right? And he goes, you know what? That's the way I want you to pray. Pray and don't give up. Another place, he's got a neighbor that shows up late at night knocking on the door. I need a Pop-Tart. I need a Pop-Tart. He's like, I don't want to get up. I need a Pop-Tart. And because of his insistence, it says the neighbor got up and did that. And it says, listen, if you know how to give evil gifts to your kids, how much better is God knowing how to give good gifts to his people? So here's my whole point is this. Uh, The church... The church, just, they just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And here's, here's the one thing that I would say is different uh, about, here's one thing that's super different about kind of our house and God's house. At our house growing up, and maybe it's your house, it's not really great if the kid keeps asking for stuff, the same stuff, right? That didn't fly really. It didn't really fly that good at the Frank household. It didn't fly when I was a kid either. It's like, you know, if he says no, all right, no, all right, then don't keep asking, all right? And by the way, that, I guess that does correspond to, because God does sometimes say no and stop asking for that. Paul's like, take the thorn away from me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to take it away. 
Paul's like, all right, I'm not going to ask anymore. But most of us, I would say, give up way too early. A lot of us, we don't even understand the way God looks at us. A lot of us don't pray because we think God is, <laughs> we have a misrepresentation of God and who our relationship is with him and Jesus. Have you ever noticed kids like to be around winsome, joyful, open, even silly people at times? You ever notice that? Kids seem to have a built-in barometer, even if it's their parent, but especially older people. Those older people are like happy and winsome and all that stuff. Man, kids are like flocking to them. You ever notice like even in the Gospels how kids love to go to Jesus? They're like, I want to go to Jesus. I want to go to Jesus. I want to go to Jesus. And God just put this. This might be the verse for some of y'all. Which we, we're going to preach. I've never preached on this passage. But in Zephaniah, like, z- who? Just, all right, just put down Zephaniah. It's the one that all the songs are written about. It's the one that the Lord, the Lord is mighty to save. And then it says this, and he will sing over you in gladness. Now, most of us actually don't even think that. We think that the Lord delights in us. If you're in Jesus, all the reason that God had to be mad at you, all the wrath that you and I deserved was taken away at the cross of Jesus. And now he looks at you as a beloved son or daughter of almighty God. And he's like, ask me, ask me again, ask me again, go ahead, ask me again. Now he's not reluctant to at all. And I don't understand how this works, but there is a, one writer called it, I think he called it the. J-E-J-I-T principle, just enough, just in time, okay? Just enough, just in time. It's like sometimes God's like, do you believe? Are you gonna trust enough to press through and not give up? And here's what I would say just to that. If you're praying and there is no answer, maybe you've been praying for a spouse to be saved, maybe you've been praying for your marriage to come back together. I prayed for my mom to come to Jesus for 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, Billy Graham prayed for her up on the mountain. He actually did. Prayed for her. But after 20 years, about eight years ago, she finally repented and embraced Jesus. So here's what I'm saying. Is don't give up. Unless God has said, stop praying for that. Keep praying. Keep praying for it. Be persistent. Here's the last one. Is I want you to... You're going to see here in the text, and this is where it comes where you know I pray cooperatively. Pray, you're like, that didn't rhyme as much as the other words do. So here, uh, here's what cooperatively means. It means in a way that involves mutual assistance and working toward a t- common goal. So here's the verse. And now, Lord, look, look, look at the balance here. The balance is, God, we're praying and believing you to do it, but we understand that we might be part of the answer to the prayer. They're praying and they're like, God, you're the one that's got to do it. But they're praying biblically because they know that God wants to reach the world with a gospel. They just don't know how it's going to work. So they're praying confidently. They're praying biblically. They're praying desperately. But now they're praying cooperatively saying, God, look upon their threats. So God, you got to take care of this. But grant to your servants, grant to your servants, grant to the people that you actually want to use, what? To continue to speak your word with all boldness. I mean, what a prayer. Now, a couple of thoughts, and then we're gonna, we're gonna pray. They didn't pray for security. There's nothing wrong with that. 
They didn't pray for comfort. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. They didn't even pray for protection. Nothing wrong with that. They said, we want to pray for boldness. Boldness does not mean arrogance. It doesn't mean rude. It doesn't mean pushy or demanding. The word boldness there used a bunch of times means clear communication in the face of potential opposition. Just clear, just clarity, clarity in the face of potential opposition. So over the next two weeks, one of the prayers that we want to pray as a church is for biblical boldness. Clarity in the face of potential opposition. Now, boldness for beginners, there could be a number of ways to do this. Let me give you a handful. One, you could uh, just give God credit. If God blesses you, man, give God credit. Give God credit, which by the way, which by the way, just got to mention, I mean, I know, I know some of you are like, you're going to use it two weeks in a row? Yes, I am. And that is the fact, did you, did you see my... Did you see my point guard on my Red Raiders last night after they won? Now, listen, I wasn't going to use it until the interview afterwards. And the lady, I love seeing sportscasters get so uncomfortable when the player says, well, I just want to give glory to Jesus. They're like, and what about the full court press? I mean, they don't know what to do at all. But the old Matt, Matt Mooney, I mean, what did he do? Comes up, to, comes up to a guy, traveled everywhere. And he's like, first of all, I want to give glory to God. And I want to give gratitude to my teammates. And I'm like, my goodness, that sounds like church. I want to give glory to God and gratitude to people. So maybe that's the start for where you want to go. Maybe it's sharing your story. Maybe it's offering to pray for some food service worker that serves you. Hey, we're going to pray. Anything we can pray for you about. Maybe it's inviting somebody to Easter service. When you leave, you're going to get little, you're going to get little cards. Just leave them somewhere. All right. Two weeks of praying, two weeks of praying. So here's what we're going to do is uh, on your seat, I think you got one of these. If you didn't, you can get one in the lobby. And it's basically, um, you got 14 days. You got 14 days until Resurrection Sunday, okay? All right? There's going to be 12 services over the weekend, all right? 12 services over that weekend. So it actually starts on Saturday. But here's what we want to do. Think of that one person, that one person that you're like, God, please do something amazing. Please bring them to Jesus. So cooperatively means, God, I'm going to pray. And so put their first name down their first name down and then what you're going to do is you're just going to put this in a little bucket when you leave and then over the next few weeks we as a church staff and other people we're going to come we're going to pray for that person John Bruce Bill Susie whoever all right you're going to leave that and then you take this other part you put it in your bible you put it in your journal you put it somewhere there's a verse or verses for the next 14 days you can pray that promise God I'm praying that right there you're like man I got something going on it's just huge 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 you feel free to put this down. You're like, my marriage is falling apart. Please pray. Feel free to put that down there, okay? My son has cancer. Feel free to put that down there. But also put down, here's a person that I'm praying for. And I would just say this. You could be part of the answer to the prayer. So you pray for yourself. You pray for yourself. Now, here's a quick hint. Don't pray for somebody that goes to some other church that you're going to invite to our Easter service, all right? We're not looking to try to get other people's sheep, all right? What you're looking for is somebody that doesn't go anywhere at all. That is, Jesus looks over his city and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are distressed and dispirited. And he says, so now what do you do? You pray for workers in the field. So that's what you and I are. That deal? So we're going to pray for that. Put a name down. You're going to keep part. You're going to give up part. And here's kind of where we're going to end. Uh, 60 people 30 years ago. On a gym floor, cried out to God. And what we want to pray is, God, do it again. God's blessed us. There's every year, I mean, 
church, there's been 900 people baptized in the last 15 months. That, that just doesn't happen that often, all right? So, uh, again, glory to God for that, and we want to we be grateful. But here's, here's the lyrics. Walking around these walls, I like this, this is a great, walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. You've given up. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a circumstance. You're like, I, I've given up. And so what I'm challenging you to do is the next 14 days, man, get back on your knees, lifting that up to the Lord, lifting up that person. But you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come. That's the hard part. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. That's why it's called faith, all right? I pray today. I receive tomorrow. Right here is walking by faith. Faith. 